Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's transatlantic interview show where I talk to the people who matter to discover how power is changing in their worlds, what makes them tick, and how they make decisions that affect all of our lives, whether it's in politics, business, innovation or culture. As we head towards another winter, the war in Ukraine grinds on and the human and financial cost rises. We've had a reminder this week that not everyone in Washington, D.C. is keen to keep funding military aid to Kyiv. We have breaking news from Capitol Hill. Lawmakers may have found a way to avoid a government shutdown tonight. Just minutes ago, the House of The U.S. government avoided a last-minute federal shutdown after Congress agreed on a short-term budget deal. Crucially, though, it excluded any new aid for Ukraine, raising questions about the durability of America's commitment. We cannot, under any circumstances, allow American support for Ukraine to be interrupted. Too many lives are at stake, too many children, too many people. So where does that leave the conflict? As we enter a turbulent election year, my guest this week doesn't see an end in sight. I fear that this could be a bit of an extended conflict, a bit of a frozen conflict, where on one hand, either side is making uh, much progress or is willing to make much movement, but it may well end in something closer to a ceasefire or a truce than a real overall peace agreement, uh, absent some more significant change. That's Michael Froman, who's recently taken the helm as president of the highly influential Council on Foreign Relations in New York. The council's recommendations and warnings are listened to in the Oval Office, the State Department, as well as foreign capitals on either side of the Atlantic. Founded in 1921, the council's been described as a school for statesmen, where the American establishment is located in its purest form. Others have complained down the years that it's comprised of what someone called a group of men, similar in interest and outlook, shaping events from invulnerable positions behind the scenes. That outlook, however, has carried far and wide, defined by promoting liberal democracy and free trade around the globe. I think it is still the North Star. I think we're going through a bit of a rough patch. It's not a linear journey towards that North Star, and we see uh, autocracies rising at times uh, around us. But autocracies are not great. I mean, they make big mistakes. But can that view of the world prevail as a bellicose Russia continues to fight for control of Ukraine and China flexes its muscles economically and potentially militarily too? In a few moments, we'll hear from Mike on the changing demands on American foreign policy. But first, let me introduce my power panel this week. And joining me are Heidi Vogt, Politico's national security editor in Washington, D.C. Hi, glad to be here. Great to have you with us. And Nicholas Vinnicker, Editor-at-Large for Politico Europe in Brussels, where, of course, it never rains. Or does it, Nick? The rumours are true, but we've had a strange month full of sun. Uh, it, will, it will be over soon. Well, 
Welcome both of you to Power Play, and we'll be hearing your thoughts in just a moment when we've heard from our guest, Michael Froman. We're about to enter the second winter of war in Ukraine after the counter-offensive is still there. You know, it's still happening, but it's hard to say there's been a significant breakthrough. Where do you see this conflict going and on what kind of timescale? The counteroffensive is underway and progress is being made, but it is very difficult. It was and it is it was expected to be difficult given the way the Russians had dug in with defensive positions. I think the the hope that the counteroffensive would be somehow overwhelmingly decisive in a short period of time and that would lead to immediate negotiations, that seems to be receding as a possibility, particularly as we head into 2024. And Vladimir Putin probably has every incentive to wait to see what happens in the November election before really sitting down to have serious negotiations. So I fear that this could be a bit of an extended conflict, a bit of a frozen conflict, where on one hand, either side is making uh, much progress or is willing to make much movement, but it may well end in something closer to a ceasefire or a truce than a real overall peace agreement, uh, absent some more significant change. Does that suggest that you think something like Crimea it would not simply come back to being part of Ukrainian territory. It would have to be part of a, I was going to say a fudge, or you could say a truce, so yeah, however one wanted to frame it. But that would, would that necessarily freeze the conflict or actually prolong it? I think the ultimate disposition of Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine is really up for the Ukrainians to decide what they're willing to accept and what they're willing to negotiate. It's not for us to determine what should happen to Crimea or eastern Ukraine. But I think facts on the ground will also determine, at least in the short or medium term, what is feasible. And so I think mean, that's the gray zone we're in right now, which is counteroffensive to try and change as many facts on the ground as possible, heading into 2024 to see whether negotiations are possible, what happens in the election of in the United States and whether that changes the commitment of the US. That's exactly my, my thought too, Mike, in really wondering whether the West can actually prevail and get somewhere or working with Kiev can get to anything like a good conclusion for this before a possible Trump return to the White House, which might, wait, we don't actually, know, but we do have some hints that it might mean a withdrawal. It would certainly be a pivot and it might be perhaps more welcome to the Kremlin than it would be to Mr Zelensky. Well, I think again, we have time uh, right now to see what happens with the counteroffensive and what happens on on the ground. It's too early to tell exactly where things are going to be uh, a year from now or, or 14 months from now. And so that's where every effort right now is to ensure that the Ukrainians have all that they need to prosecute this counteroffensive. And then we'll see where we are uh, as we head into next year. Heidi, how does that last-minute congressional budget deal change things here? The price of getting it through, metaphorically, at two minutes to midnight, was that there was not so much confidence about where future funding and military aid for Ukraine was going to come from, or indeed whether it would be possible at all. Yeah, no, in some ways, that scramble and the decision in the end to leave it out of the stopgap measure shows exactly what a lot of people have been talking about, that, you know, this sense of we're all behind Ukraine all the way only lasts so long. And, you know, we've had countries in Europe backing out, or at least sort of holding off. 
And here in the U.S., there are a large number of Republicans who are questioning how long do we do this with how much. Obviously, there's also still a very large pro-Ukraine caucus and the Biden administration pushing to get this through. But it shows the the confidence is lower than it was even maybe a few months ago. So, Nick, how is this all going down in European capitals who in many ways have taken their lead from the mood in Washington, the way I heard Mike Frome, and he was at least suggesting that this was more of a kind of bogged down feeling than a let's keep on, let's push, we can help take Ukraine to victory. What did you make of it? Well, I think there's a growing sense of alarm in uh, European capitals. Uh, we wrote on Monday that the West was uh, having its first big case of the wobbles over Ukraine. And certainly the Republicans sort of blocking the funding has a direct impact on the Europeans because it means they'll simply have to pick up the tab if there is a funding shortfall at the end of the year. Let's remember that the Ukrainians don't quite have the money to close a budget gap that they have and they're and they're waiting they're very very dependent on western money so i think the implication for europeans is sort of direct very clear and it basically means that europeans are going to have to see themselves in the driver's seat on uh, support for ukraine going into maybe you know Congress will unleash uh, those funds but what it says is that this now becomes a, a european problem Heidi, if the American consensus is indeed faltering, does that weaken the resolve and the unity of broader support for Ukraine? And is this something that you think the administration will be concerned about? Or are they just so relieved to have got that moment over and got that budget deal across the line that it's sort of on the to-do list to be sorted out later? The administration is very concerned about this. This is very much not what they wanted to happen. The U.S. has been a driving force in this, as Nick was saying, and um, the Biden administration wants to continue to be in that place. Biden always, you know, prides himself on his foreign policy and his ability to unite countries. Uh, So if the U.S. can't be in that spot, and I continue to caveat you know, they're working really hard to stay with it. It does change, I think, some of those dynamics. What struck me was the way that Mike Froman's tone or even his choice of words seemed to suggest a lot more caution, a lot more uncertainty. Yes, we're still there to support Ukraine. But it did sound, I think he used the phrase, something like a grey zone, where it was really unclear what was going to happen for a long time. And and Nick, I wondered where you thought that left Volodymyr Zelensky, because his tone, when we see him in any capital I've ever seen him speak in, and you'll have seen him as well in Brussels and beyond, has been, we have to keep doing this and you have to support us more and faster. Is there a gap opening up there of expectations and a kind of reality gap? Quite right. I mean, I think this is where international relations is really a drama and is full of very tough moments. I mean, you had Ukrainian president in Washington less than two weeks ago pleading for more money. 
And the answer was no. And that's the sort of situation the door is closing for Ukraine. And it's an incredibly difficult reckoning for Kyiv to deal with. I think they expected this to happen. They expected Western interest or the Western unity to somewhat dissolve ahead of the presidential election in the US parliament elections in Europe. But nobody expected it to come so quickly. And the fact it's come so quickly is jarring. Let's turn to the way the wind's blowing more generally in America's approach to the big questions in geopolitics and the major choices. Domestic priorities are clearly coming to the fore. We've seen economic policy tilt very much to the home front. Where does it leave free trade as one of the hallmarks of US foreign policy? That's something I asked Mike Froman. Let's have a listen to him on that. I think free trade for free trade's sake perhaps is gone out of fashion. I think what's happened is that people have really understood the relationship between international economics and domestic economics much better than they did before. And there's a much greater focus on doing what's necessary domestically to ensure the competitiveness of your economy. That may take the form of industrial policy at times. The transition that's necessary for workers who may be displaced by technology as well as by trade to make sure that they're equipped with education and training and the support structures of a social safety net to be able to succeed and to thrive in a rapidly changing economy. So I think there's a much greater focus on the nexus between domestic and international policy. I believe we're in a bit of a transition period. Can I be a bit cheeky here and say, well, is this a bit of a pivot really from a bit of a continuum at the Council on Foreign Relations, reflecting, I think, some broader trends? It's a bit more protectionist than we might have heard a few years ago. Am I right? Well, the protectionism has sort of has a pejorative feel to it. I think, look, I think think the, the center of gravity on economic policy has certainly shifted. And I'll just give you one example. When we engaged with China starting in 1979, brought them into the international system, the expectation was that China would become more like us. We criticized them for protectionism. We criticized them for keeping their market closed to foreign investment in particular sectors. Uh, We criticized them for subsidization and widespread industrial policy. Now, after having been somewhat frustrated by our inability to change Chinese policy in these areas, we have become more like China. And we've engaged now in robust industrial policy. We've engaged in some protectionism. And we are beginning to both ramp up our efforts to prevent foreign investment in critical sectors in the U.S. and also beginning to think about screening outward investment from the United States into into China. In your own mind, what's the right balance on China between engagement, because it is also a big player in terms of the arguments about climate change, and at the same time, effectively saying that this is a strategic competitor and is going to be treated as such, you know, a a certain hostility has entered the relationship. And that, strangely enough, is kind of driven by the trade argument in the way that trade used to be seen as a way that we could all kind of hold hands uh, between across however many seas it is to get from America to China. I think the Biden administration has gotten it just about right in talking about three categories of issues with China. There's some areas, as you mentioned, like climate change, but I'd also put nuclear nonproliferation, North Korea, where there's a strong mutual interest in cooperating. There's another set of issues that need to be managed very carefully because they could escalate into conflict, issues around Taiwan, the South China Sea, et cetera. 
And then there's a third set of issues, which you were just alluding to, which are where we're likely to remain competitors. And whether that's economics, technology, where we really are competing, we have laid that out. The Biden administration has laid that out to China. The challenge is that China hasn't really accepted that. And they have instead responded that they're not willing to engage in serious conversations about climate and other areas of common interest. They're not willing to talk about military to military contacts that might help mitigate uh, military engagement from escalating into, into something dangerous because we haven't resolved the competitive aspect of our relationship. So I think the Biden administration has laid out quite a sophisticated and nuanced view of what a great power relationship might look like. So far, the Chinese have, have rejected that and you can't you can't really progress very far if the other party doesn't buy into that framework. How strongly do you take the risk of an invasion of Taiwan by China or at least a military intervention, which would amount to a takeover? I think we have to take it seriously as a, a possibility. Uh, there's a debate about whether the China's military is ready for an action like that, whether the political decision uh, has been made to take that sort of action. Uh, but certainly they have been building up their military, uh, their navy, their nuclear forces, of course. Uh, and so they're becoming a much more significant military power. Uh, President Xi has made it very clear this is an issue he wants to get resolved on his watch, not leave to future generations. And so I think we have to be we have to take it very seriously. We've done a, number, a lot of work here at the council on laying out what some policies might be to help deter uh, military intervention in Taiwan. And that, I think, is the focus right now is building up the deterrence because nobody wants to see an all-out war, an invasion, and, and what might emerge. So our focus right now really should be on what we and our allies need to do to deter China from taking that kind of action. Heidi, interesting there to hear the head of the Council on Foreign Relations saying that the Biden administration has got it right on China, but that there has been something of a pivot in that long view of how to deal with China. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, he very brightly talks about how we used to think that trade was a way in with China, that we'd tie ourselves up economically, and that would somehow, as he says, you know, help make them more like us. And I think we're seeing now, and in some ways, you know, Trump started this conversation and the rhetoric in the U.S. about we need to be more protectionist in the way we deal with China. And the Biden administration has run with that. And trade has become a national security issue. And as a result of that, trade is also one of the more hostile issues with China. You know, we do want to protect our tech. We want to disentangle from China. But it's also almost the only thing that's happening because that's where China needs the U.S. And China is setting the terms of a lot of these conversations in terms of who they talk to. So it's a very complicated spot, but definitely something that has been shifting. Nick, European capitals have also been through their own shifts, twists and turns on China in recent years. In, in London, there's a lot of focus on security and alleged carelessness about the security that the UK put on its dealings with China, telecoms, etc. Berlin seems especially conflicted about how much to do business with China, on what terms. The EU is trying to strike a slightly different tone, a more testing tone again. 
How much is all this following America's lead? Or do you just see these European capitals you cover day in, day out, just doing their own thing, making it up as they go along? The guest spoke about the Chinification of American economic interests and, and Europe is in a way reacting to what's going on in Washington with the Inflation Reduction Act and be taking on a sort of what they would call a autonomy, strategic autonomy or sovereignty, call it what you will, protectionism. Uh, it's certainly the order of the day. And the tone toward China, I mean, there's an incredible dissension and, and disagreement within Europe over how to deal with China. But uh, certainly from Brussels and the commission, it's gotten much, much tougher. And one example of that was the president of the commission announcing a probe into subsidies for uh, Chinese electric vehicles it was really sort of a very kind of significant moment that went down very, very poorly with the Chinese. And it does tell you we're in a different era right now in terms of international trade. Trade relations. You're thousands of miles apart, both of you talking to me today. How large does the threat of Taiwan loom in thinking about the South China Sea and more broadly in those on-off relations with China, Heidi? Well, I mean, it looms very large, but it's also a very difficult thing to figure out on the US side how to really change China's calculation here. You know, I know that Froman was talking about deterrence and the need to do that, but, you know, the US has been trying to increase military aid to Taiwan. At the same time, China has the world's largest navy and a lot more air power. You know, the, there was a war game that was done here with a China committee in Congress where they basically decided. If China invades Taiwan and we levy financial sanctions, it won't do anything. So everybody seized of it. There's a lot stronger rhetoric that the administration and the Pentagon and everyone is saying about, we're worried about this, this could happen soon. But what might actually deter China is very hard to see. And Nick, you work closely with our teams who cover defence in detail, but also trade in detail, the EV standoff that you just mentioned there. What about Taiwan? Does this kind of bridge these two areas or is this really a concern, shall we say, for the defence nerds and not so much for those who are thinking about this as a trade conflict? Yeah. Heidi said it looms large. I'm tempted to say it looms slightly less large for Europe. It feels more distant as a problem. But that in itself is very significant in this geopolitical moment. And you can see this in the way that a leader like Emmanuel Macron wants to be Europe's strategic thinker and leader is saying, well, NATO, our transatlantic alliance, should not worry, should not concern itself with Asian affairs. And he has opposed the opening of a NATO office in Japan. And he's saying, please, and I, he certainly, I'm not quoting him, but the spirit of what he's saying is, please don't force us to follow you into this conflict over Taiwan. We want to manage the relationship with China on our terms. Uh, but we don't want to be in lockstep with Washington on Taiwan. But then again, there's variations. Germany has sent frigates into the South China Sea. France has shown its support, military support for the U.S. in the South China Sea. That Western alliance remains a reality, but the engagement of the Europeans on Taiwan is certainly less intense than the U.S. One thing that struck me talking to Mike Froman and thinking about the time that I've covered geopolitics from the fall of the Berlin Wall, when my 
career kind of conveniently starts at this time of that great moment in Europe and changing order across the Atlantic at the end of the Cold War was, are we still doing liberal democracy as a prime American export to the world or are we not? And I asked Mike Freeman whether free trade, liberal free trade in that relationship between the two ideas is still the North Star of US foreign policy in the West. Have a listen to what he says about that. I think it is still the North Star. Uh, I think we're going through a bit of a rough patch. It's not a linear journey towards that North Star. And we see uh, autocracies uh, rising at times uh, around us. But autocracies are not great. I mean, they make big mistakes. We see how China managed COVID, how Russia going into Ukraine based on some probably very faulty information and decision making. The lack of feedback loop, I think, still uh, makes autocracies quite brittle over time. And to me, the liberal democracy really is continues to be the best form of government and the best way of organizing the economy, the way of ensuring that there's innovation and that there's inclusion. And I do think it will continue to be a North Star that we head towards, but we just have to work very hard in the meantime to get through what what I think is a difficult transition period. Heidi, that was quite a choice of words, a transition period. But from what to what? Is it a transition back to the glad, confident morning, perhaps a bit more complicated on the trade front and a more difficult and resurgent China, as you've both just reflected? Or is it a transition to something else and we're not sure of the destination? What was your gut feeling about that remark? That phrase struck me as well. I thought Froman was very hopeful here. Um, He's saying, we're just in a transition period, but I had the exact same question. I was like, but we're all thinking, for example, about what happens if Trump comes back. The U.S. could transition to a lot of different versions of its government right now. And he also seemed so confident that autocracies are brittle. Well, things can go pretty badly in an autocracy for a long time, and it can still continue and have a strong military and really have a giant impact on the world and what the rest of us are doing. I don't know what he is quite saying we're transitioning to, but I do very much think it's up in the air. And Nick, how worried are European leaders about that idea of a period of transition if the direction of travel is perhaps unclear or there are many more forks in the road. Does it affect that sense that the US is a steadfast ally, which in a sense you used to say like it all over, some people thought it was the global policeman, others said, oh no, we really need this to get through difficult interventions and to support liberal democracy. Do you feel that bet is perhaps a less certain one for European leaders than it was well, I think there's two parts. Uh, one is the sort of giant Trump factor. We can talk about liberal democracy, but if Trump is back in the White House, then it completely resets the whole game. And the Europeans obviously will not be looking to Washington for sort of leadership, uh, at least on the kind of rhetorical defense of liberal democracy in a world. Let's uh, not go over Trump's uh, friendships with dictators uh, right and left. The second question, I-, I was very struck by Froman's talking about, well, it's a North Star. It's a direction we're traveling. 
hold on. Uh, it wasn't so long ago that it wasn't a North Star. It was a bombing target. It was something that you enforced uh, with hard power. And uh, in the past week, we've had uh, interventions in Serbia. Uh, you've had the events in Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, I'm old enough to remember the U.S. being the world's policeman. It is no longer playing that role. And we are watching the consequences live of what that world looks like. And I can sense from some Europeans, well, they're not, maybe not so comfortable, maybe not so happy with the world without this policeman. Yes, a sense of America sometimes being there and sometimes not being there, like a bit of like on-off radio reception, which fortunately you don't have to worry about if you're listening to a podcast. Both of you mentioned Donald Trump and the possible return of Donald Trump, certainly as the Republican candidate looking more and more likely. And then, of course, the big battle for the White House in 2024. Is the foreign policy establishment better prepared for such an eventuality this time than it was in 2016? I think Mike Froman believes it should be taken more seriously. I think this, at the moment, they are much more focused on it, having gone through it in 2016. And every foreign official I speak to is asked the question about the prospects for the next election. They're very concerned about it. They don't know whether Donald Trump's election was a one-time event, an aberration in American politics, or something reflecting a ongoing trend. And so they're looking very, very carefully. And of course, we know the election in 2016 was very close. The election in 2020 was very close. So I think everybody has to be prepared that that is a real possibility and take actions accordingly. What would your actions be? So there you are, you know, you have this, you could call it kind of a bully pulpit, but you also have a very direct influence on the conduct of foreign policy and on those who shape it, which is why we've got you on as a, a power player today, which I hope appeals to you. But I mean, so apart from being sort of aware of it, I asked Keir Starmer this in our first interview, the Labour leader in the UK might well be in number 10 Downing Street uh, next year. So you, who knows, you might, you might find yourself shaking hands with him. And he was clearly mulling it over. It was hard to get the sense that they sort of knew what they would do about it. Do you ask yourself that? I think every country after 2016 has recognized that this is a, a possibility in the U.S. that is real and ongoing. And whether Donald Trump ran again, whether he wins this time or not, there clearly is a significant portion of the American public that resonates to his message. And that's going to be an ongoing force in American politics that any politician is going to have to take into account. And so... I think you see other countries preparing by, in some ways, hedging their bets. This is not a unipolar world anymore. It's not really a multipolar world, in in my view. Uh, it is, as, as some have called it, perhaps a, a polyamorous world where countries love us for some purposes. Countries love or are engaged with, with China or Russia or Iran for other purposes. Um, and it's a much more complex international environment than I think we've ever faced or we've faced since the Second World War. And so it's going to require a much more nuanced form of diplomacy. Nick, a return of Donald Trump to the White House would unsettle a lot of assumptions in Europe. Do EU capitals reflect on this very much or even have the beginnings 
of a joined up possible response to this because it would really throw so much up in the air that's been defining for them, whether it's relations with uh, Russia, how to end the Ukraine crisis, China and much, much more. Well, this is something that's come up in discussions for months now. I brought it up with diplomats. The big thing that struck me was the major shift in tone compared to the buildup to 2016. Europeans are no longer in denial. Uh, They're wide awake to the sort of Trump-shaped monster on the wall, watching the polls almost in horror and saying, we need to prepare, desperately need to prepare. They say, well, we're doing some things. Look at all the weapons for Ukraine. Look at building up uh, manufacturing capacity. But what I was trying to say in this piece that was published last week, week was on the big questions, the really difficult questions, such as, well, if U.S. isn't leading militarily, strategically in Europe, who is? Who's in charge? How does that structure? There is no debate, and and there are there isn't a real sort of diving into these questions. They're so momentous. They're so big. They question the sort of fundament of the European way of life because of the trade-offs that would be implied that they're too difficult to get into. And in that sense, I think Europe is still perhaps not in denial, but still in wishful thinking mode about Trump. And Heidi, Michael Froman also said a significant portion of the American public resonates to the Trump message. That's going to be an ongoing force, as he put it, in American politics. And any politician is going to need to take that into account. Is there more of a strain of isolationism in America, a desire to retreat from some of the big global headaches we've been discussing on this podcast, then it's been convenient for the foreign policy establishment to take on board? One thing I would say is there's always been a strain of isolationism in the U.S. that foreign policy folks don't really want to acknowledge um, sometimes. But the MAGA crowd, the America first, like all of that is there regardless of who gets elected in the next presidential election. And that does affect policy. It affects things like Ukraine aid. It affects things like how our international partnerships are seen. And I think it'll be an ongoing thing with whoever is in the presidency of how to deal with those constituencies that are part of the American public, even if they're not part of your party. Well, thank you to both of my power panel there, enlightening us all about their views on our interview with the head of the Council on Foreign Relations. We'll be back just after this. Before I go, I've got to ask you both, have you ever met? We do spend quite a lot of time meeting on Zoom as a fuzz, on a fuzzy background. Nick and I actually both previously were tech editors, respectively, for the US and Europe. So we've spent a long time across a lot of different issues, throwing back ideas uh, back and forth. I, I think that's accurate. I think uh, we were kind of pandemic friends and colleagues, and uh, it all it all happened in Zoom. But now, now let's uh, we got to meet in person. It's uh, no more excuses. Well, great to have you both back in touch and helping us on the show today. Thanks both. Thank, Thank you. you. And we'll be continuing our conversation just after this. Stay with us. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology. 
It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Welcome back to Powerplay. And I had one more question for Mike Froman. We've been asking all of our guests who they'd like to see take the hot seat to replace you in the weeks ahead. Who should we have on Powerplay? Who would you be interested in listening to? <laughs> Uh, they've got to have some power and they've got to be interesting. I think they're the two main criteria. I seem to have agreed with my producers. Well, I think if you could get them, Jake Sullivan is uh, is very good value, very wise, has a lot of great insights. I would recommend him for your show. Jake Sullivan, consider yourself invited. And this is a very neat way in which we get our guests to do our booking work for us. You see, it's like it's a win-win there, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it from this edition of Power Play. It's a crowded field of podcasts out there, we know, so we're glad our rivals have noticed our arrival on the pitch. The BBC's Nick Robinson was kind enough to give us a shout-out the other day, observing that it's not all podcast hosts who are guys. Yes, there are some dolls. Well, have they not noticed Fee and Jane on Times Radio and McElvoy got a new podcast this week on Politico? Emily Maitlis hosts the news agents. Laura Koonsberg's just gone back to uh, newscast, having founded Brexit. I hope you've enjoyed the show too and do follow us on your favourite podcast platform. We'd love it if you could leave us a review to tell us what you make of the show. We do take it to heart. The producer in London is Peter Snowden and from Berlin, the executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. Goodbye for now and join us next week for another edition of Power Play. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.